Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Euronurse. Uh, got the time changed a little different for today. We're starting an hour early. Threw me off. I forgot to hit that start button. So sorry, we're a little late, but we're still here. And if you're watching us on YouTube, LinkedIn, or Facebook, welcome to the show. And for you YouTubers, be sure to hit that subscribe button. A couple weeks ago, I told you we just rolled over our 300th subscriber. We just all turned over 400 subscribers this week, so keep up the work. If you're new to the show, be sure to check out our website at Euronurse.com where you can find out more about the show. It's also the best place to go to watch all of our past episodes, and we've got 62 of those episodes for you. Hey, if you want to listen in your car, we do have an audio podcast available. Go to our Euronurse Plus area on the website, and you can listen to us in any of your favorite formats. I do have a newsletter that goes out every Monday that has more information about the show. Be sure to sign up if you haven't been getting the newsletter. Got a lot of good information in there for you. And if you're attending the show live and you have questions, be sure to put them in that comment box. We'll always get to your questions. Now, we got a great show. Lace Heideman, one of our regular experts, is going to be joining us to talk about BCG today. And let's go ahead and bring in our expert panelists today. Hey, Lace, welcome to the show. Good morning. And another nice day to get a beautiful show going here. We're a little cloudy where I'm at. I don't know how weather is in Iowa, but it's always a good time to have a good show. Uh, just the two of us here. today. I, I think our, our early start time caught a few of our uh, regular panelists uh, still sleeping. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, hey, it's always good. Um, I do have a favorite story and, and an introduction of myself, and then I'll let Lace introduce herself. But I am the host and producer of the show. Started this show a little over a year ago, and I've been involved in urology for 40 years. Really enjoyed all the time I spent taking care of patients and wanted a way to kind of pass this forward to the next generation that's going to take over. And that's where Euronurse neuro nurse came in as a way to do that. Now, interesting story that I thought I'd share kind of goes with the BCG theme is I uh, this is goes way back. Um, my wife and I were going shopping one day. We're in one of the those big malls, you know, where you can walk through and all the stores are there and you're in clothes. So, you know, it's kind of, you don't have to be all dressed up in coats and stuff. Um, anyway, we're walking and all of a sudden I kind of recognize somebody coming towards me in the group, in the audience or in the mall. And, you know, when you get that where you kind of, you know, you know them, but you don't remember who it is in their name. Well, this lady walks up and says, oh, Vic, nice to see you. And she, I think she could read my face and know that I wasn't really quite figuring out who she was. And she goes, well, you probably don't recognize me with my clothes on. And I'm like, all of a sudden she realized that she, what she just said in an open ball with my wife, all embarrassed. She goes, no, no, no. And I, and instantly I remembered she was one of my patients for BCG. She, so of course she's, we had a good laugh over that, but, um, I'm sure that anybody in this profession has had that experience where, you know, there's one of you and everybody seems to know you, but then you run into somebody and you know them, but when you're in, it's not in your office setting, you kind of get mixed up. Um, anyway, that's my story for this week and I'll bring Lace in. What's your introduction? If you got a story, otherwise we'll go into your talk. All right. Good morning, everyone. And that is a great story, Vic. Really, really funny, but uh, good morning, everyone. Great. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here again. Um, I'm Lace Heideman, a nurse. 
I've been in neurology for over 10 years, uh, certified in neurology, still work in neurology, love it a lot. Um, my fun story, um, more of an interesting fact, and also goes kind of with the BCG theme. So as I've shared before, I'm native uh, from Brazil and um, being born in a foreign country uh, in the 80s, I was vaccinated with the BCG vaccine for tuberculosis. So uh, very interesting. Um, and it's something that we'll talk about here in the presentation a little bit um, that, um, you know, it's a little bit different than than your regular uh, Joe that just gets a PPD test. But um, that that's my fun fact. Um, not uh, not everybody gets to share that. Really yeah. Today, so that is interesting. Well, we've got some comments coming in here, so I thought we'll share those real quick. Uh, Katie Bortel says, good morning from Chicago. It's raining and cold here. Absolutely. Boy, the weather changed here. Susie Swain, good morning. It's dark still, but I think it's raining here in Centralia, Washington. Hey, Susie, that's getting up pretty early this morning to come to the show. Thanks to, for joining us. Jennifer Shipstad, good morning. Cloudy and cold in Minneapolis. You guys are really the ones who are the, the brave hearted. I went to Minneapolis a while back for uh, something with Medtronic. And man, does it get cold there. <laughs> Heather Hansen, good morning from Moorhead, Minnesota. Same weather here. Oh, I'm glad we're sharing this great weather. And Nancy from Brownlee. I, I'm sorry, Nancy Brownlee. Hello, Friendswood, Texas. Wow, that sounds like a nice place to, to visit. Raj, good morning. Houston is warm. All right. Somebody's got some decent weather. And hi, Nancy. My brother-in-law lives in Friendswood. See, it's a small world, isn't it? So, yeah, welcome, everybody. Glad to get those introductions. Uh, glad everybody's joined us for the show, too. All right. I'm going to switch over and let Lace take over and present here on BCG. All right. Uh, well, good morning again. Uh, everyone will get started here um, on this awesome BCG skill development um, PowerPoint. And we'll talk a little bit, uh, you know, first of what is BCG, right? Um, I mean, I just shared uh, I was vaccinated um, for BCG and that was the initial purpose of this vaccine. Um, many foreign born persons. So you know, true example here are BCG vaccinated. Um, this is um, a vaccine administered in countries with high prevalence of tuberculosis. Um, and, it, you know, it's just another vaccine on the vaccine chart. Um, BCG usually is not recommended as a vaccine for tuberculosis in the United States, um, as there's not, you know, a high rate of, of tuberculosis here. And it also messes up a little bit. It gives you a false positive on that PPD, you know, that skin test. So now, interestingly enough, um, in healthcare, uh, you know, you develop a, a medicine, a vaccine for one purpose. And next thing you know, you're using it for something else. So Dr. Uh, you know, uh, Burton Zebar in the 70s um, started using the BCG vaccine in different ways. Um, and this was to both treat melanoma and bladder cancer. Now, I do want to put a little disclaimer out there. Um, please make sure that you check your facility's policy for BCG mixing, handling, administration, etc. Um, you know, 
each uh, facility should have their own policies and rules. So this is just informational. And of course, as a nurse, I can't, you know, I uh, can't skip the five rights of medication administration. Make sure you always have your right patient, the right medication that you're administering in the right route. It's the right time and the right dose. Couple things to consider before BCG treatment. Um, of course, if someone has had a traumatic, you know, catheterization recently, or traumatic, you know, cystoscopy, anything in, in, introducing to the urethra that might have been traumatic, or any urinary surgery. Here, mostly we're talking about those, you know, TURBT, so transurethral um, resection of bladder tumors. You want to make sure that you are um, allowing enough time to heal um, for the patient to heal before you're starting your BCG course. <clears throat> Immunocompromised um, individuals should not uh, have the BCG um, intravesical treatment. And any patients with an active infection should also not have um, their BCG treatment while they're on treatment for their infection. Now, this covers both urinary tract infections, as well as um, any concurrent infections. Um, when we're talking about preparation of the BCG vial, um, a lot of folks think of the hood um, and, and whatnot, and that is how it is mixed in, in various different facilities. Um, we'll have a little picture of what that looks like here shortly. But if you look at the insert um, on the BCG um, itself, it does talk that, you know, they do recommend um, mixing that in the biocontainment hood. But if you don't have that and supplied that you are in a room with good ventilation, you can mix your BCG with uh, respiratory protection, eye protection, gloves, um, etc. So do recommend that we use, um, you know, those chemo gloves. Um, I think everybody's familiar with those. Um, eye protection, of course, because you don't want that to splash into your eyes, um, as well as, uh, you know, gown, mask. You don't want this to get into any mucous membranes, any splashing, um, or perhaps, you know, in the winter here, we all have crummy weather right now. Um, you get, you know, dry hands from washing it so much. Any surface that could have that exposure, you know, to a, an open little sore, you want to make sure you are protecting um, both for the mixing portion, but also the administration. Um, now, this slide is looking a little goofy. I apologize. Um, it's hard to read, but this essentially is talking um, about, you know, you, you must mix BCG um, using a, a septic technique. One thing that is very important, whether you are just mixing BCG in, in a regular room with good ventilation or hood, you know, in, in a hood, you want to make sure that you are using a separate area that is dedicated for the mixing of the BCG. So, Take, for instance, the clinic I'm at, we have a med room, right, where things like rosefin are mixed and we draw, um, you know, different lidocaine and different other medications. Um, we have a completely separate area where we mix BCG. Now, note that after mixing BCG, if you have any spills, you want to make sure that you're cleaning that immediately um, using a sandy cloth and or a bleach solution um, also is recommended. 
Um, again, I apologize here for the uh, the slide not being very good to read. Uh, this is talking about the first method of mixing BCG. So this method um, is usually, you know, more so used if you're mixing it um, in a hood um, environment, which kind of sucks in that air of, of the area um, that you're mixing. So your hands are into, um, you know, the um, actual um, hood and it kind of has that proper ventilation that's sucking the air immediately. Um, this literally just uses a syringe um, where you pull some of that preservative free sodium chloride back, mix it into the vial, swirl it around a little bit. You don't want to be too aggressive because you don't want to create clumps. And then from there you put um, the mix, the small mix, about three mils, and to your catheter tip syringe that should have about a total of 50 mils um, of um, that um, sodium chloride, the preservative free um, into a catheter tip syringe. And then of course um, you have your catheter for administration. Uh, now the second method, and I would say one of the most common methods of mixing that you do see out there in clinics are using a closed system um, for reconstitution. So here you have two examples, um, you know, to the right and left. Um, some individuals, by the way, do use that sodium chloride in a little bag um, and, you know, dispense the BCG via gravity, or it can be on a catheter tip syringe as well, just from the vial of the preservative free. The main difference is in this mixing method versus mixing it regularly with the syringe are, of course, that this is made so that it's a very protected closed system. Now, don't get me wrong. You still want to make sure that you gown and that you wear your gloves and eye protection because, you know, who knows? <laughs> um, but essentially, these systems come with specific adapters that you kind of spike your vial, spike your bag or your other vial. Uh, so the BCG vial and the sodium chloride vial. Um, and then you're able to pull, um, you know, and mix um, in a little bit of a more um, controlled environment. Um, some things when you're thinking about, okay, have my patient here for their BCG treatment. Um, we want to make sure that they're giving you avoided urine specimen. Uh, you want to run a basic urinalysis. Of course, here we're looking for things like potentially, you know, nitrites. We're looking for leukocytes. We're looking for blood in the urine. Um, you want to make sure that in addition to, you know, having the conversation with your patient of, hey, do you have any infections? Do you feel okay? You also want to check their urine. And let's talk about avo avoided urine specimen um, because with catheterization, you know, it, it may be a little, um, it, you might get a little blood there. And so you want to make sure that avoided specimen, which again is ideal. Um, if a patient has gross hematuria, it is not recommended um, that they get their BCG treatment. Um, the other thing I'll mention um, in regards to the urinalysis. <clears throat> is that um, sometimes, you know, we all have patients who have colonized bacteria, you name it. So please know that each patient is um, assessed, you know, according to their own medical history and what would be appropriate for them. These are kind of general um, rules to, to go by.
And of course, you know, this is always provider dependent that will say, yep, we're good to go for this treatment. Um, something else, of course, we always talk about hand washing um, and good, you know, personal hygiene measurements. This is not, of course, only because it's the right thing to do, but you also want to make sure that before you're eating, drinking, smoking, handling anything else, that you really do, you know, wash your hands after handling that BCG. Um, now, when we're talking about, you know, administering this to the patient after you've obtained your urine specimen, you're good to go. They feel well. They don't have a fever. Um, we're good to go. We're having them undress from the waist down. We're explaining the procedure to the patient, making sure that they understand that this medication um, is administered through a catheter um, that does not necessarily have to stay there. Um, but it's so that we can get the medication into their bladder um, and that um, we're obtaining consent and that the patient knows all the steps. Um, sometimes for male patients, um, you may find individuals that use lidocaine jelly. So that viscous lidocaine to sit there um, a little bit, that's not necessarily a must. Um, it's kind of that verbal anesthesia, so to speak, and making sure that you have a well-lubricated catheter uh, will do just fine. Um, when you are getting your patient ready, um, the recommendation really make sure you have a, an area, checks, you know, covered, uh, covered their legs and really only expose um, the area that you need for catheterization. Now, of course, this is different for males and females and do perform the catheterization according to your clinic's protocol. Um, we do go ahead and empty the bladder completely. Um, again, as a reminder, individuals are going to have to keep that BCG uh, mix in their bladder um, for up, you know, to two hours so that it can kind of marinate in there and do its thing. Um, and so we want to make sure that we are emptying the bladder so that they don't feel like they have to go to the bathroom right away. Um, again, using the chucks, um, making sure that you have all the things that you need um, to, um, you insert your catheter, um, you connect either your tubing, um, or your, you know, catheter tip syringe there. Um, and usually, uh, you want to make sure it's primed, of course, um, and you kind of let it go by gravity. Um, sometimes it might take a tiny little push to kind of get that flow going, um, but you want to make sure that you are allowing the solution um, to go down by gravity. So, of course, um, as the patient's laying down, you raise your solution, you know, higher um, than the patient so that gravity can do its, its job. I always like to have gauze um, and, you know, additional pads um, right there for me. So, that especially after you remove the catheter, you know, that can be some droplets and whatnot. You want to make sure that you're cleaning the area for the patient and you're not letting that sit there. Um, we do, of course, want to make sure that we're providing patients um, with um, all the privacy that um, they deserve and really only exposing the areas that we need to work with. Um, when we are talking about removing that catheter, again, squeezing, kind of holding that catheter um, tight and pinching it a little bit so that any remaining, um, you know, solution doesn't just fly everywhere, not only onto your patient, but onto yourself also. Um, and, you know, of course, make sure the catheter is intact um, and that you are cleaning any potential drops that you did have. Once that's 
um, removed and good to go. You want to make sure that you are discarding of your um, catheter and chucks, etc., appropriately. Again, this will vary from facility to facility. We treat um, our BCG as we would any um, chemo waste. And so it goes into a yellow bag and it gets taken into its appropriate area. Um, and this is, of course, the, air, the, the time where you are um, reinforcing um, with your patient that, you know, we would like for you to keep this into your bladder for as long as you possibly can. There are instances where patients do have to keep a catheter in, a uh, plugged catheter, um, as they're unable to hold in the urine themselves. And so, you know, this is um, also a possibility there. But reinforcing with the patient those post-procedural, um, you know, expectations, which we'll go over here in a little bit, is really important. And also making sure that they have their follow-up visit. Um, is really, really important because BCG is not a one and done. Um, it is a series of treatments. Um, this chart here kind of goes a little bit into, you know, uh, a patient what a patient-facing instruction would look like a little bit. So we do say, hey, maybe limit your fluid intake a little bit, you know, the hours leading up to your procedure. Um, so again, that way they're able to keep that solution into their bladder for the two hours. Um, it talks about how a catheter is inserted through the urethra and that BCG medication is then inserted through the catheter. This chart here talks about clamping the catheter. And again, for someone who might be incontinent, who might not be able to hold that solution on their own, this is an alternative uh, where then in a few hours, the, the patient um, would have that catheter removed. Um, does talk about having that repeat procedure um, about once a week for six weeks. Um, now, to be clear, that's the induction therapy. So that is usually the initial therapy um, that the patients receive. There's also maintenance therapy for BCG, which would be about three weeks once a week. Uh, when it comes to patient education, which we all know, extremely important here, um, we're talking about trying to not void one or two hours post-procedure um, if possible. Um, after voiding, um, they want to make sure that they're using about two cups of undiluted bleach uh, and pouring that in their toilet, closing the lid and just letting that sit there for 15 to 20 minutes before they flush. Um, we do highly recommend to close the lid of the toilet to prevent any splashing, um, as well as sitting uh, to void for males in this case, as you want to avoid any potential splashing um, that could happen if you're standing to urinate. Um, some other things that we talk about, of course, if the patient were to notice any splashing into their hands, genital area, or really um, anywhere, they want to make sure that they're washing, cleansing that area to avoid any potential irritation to the skin. We do recommend avoiding public restrooms and also urinating, say, in the woods. So maybe don't go camping right after. Um, and we do say increase your fluids um, to make sure you're diluting the urine thereafter. Uh, some common side effects that you can see, some blood in the urine. Now, again, I, I caution because we're not talking here about bad ketchup-like, cherry-colored, you know, that you don't want. But some, you know, minor blood in the urine um, can be expected. 
a low-grade fever sometimes, some tiredness, um, urinary frequency, urgency, perhaps some burning with urination. Now, something really important to enforce with your patients is that if they develop a fever of, you know, 101 or higher, have chills, rash, prolonged cough, joint pain, anything like that for over 48 hours, they most definitely should be contacting their doctor's office as soon as possible. Uh, some additional considerations. So, you know, things that um, as nurses, we really should be thinking about and educating our patients. Um, is they're, you know, human beings that have normal lives. And one of the big things to consider is if the individual is sexually active, they do not recommend them to have intercourse for at least 48 hours following that BCG installation. And Throughout the, the the course of their um, BCG treatment, so say the six weeks or the three weeks or um, however long that they would be doing their treatment, uh, they do recommend, of course, that they wear a condom. Um, and um, also for anyone who might be of childbearing age, um, they do not, of course, recommend that you are trying for a child. So you know, contraceptive methods are recommended during the period of um, your treatment. Now, sometimes you may have some urinary incontinence, kind of with that urge incontinence, perhaps. Um, if that happens, you your clothes become soiled. Um, you want to make sure that you are, you know, laundering that right away and that it is separate from other clothing. Um, hot water, if all possible. Um, and of course, Make sure that you're always performing good hand hygiene after handling um, clothing or any items like that. Um, alongside with urinary symptoms, and this is not unique to BCG treatments, but as urology nurses, you know, various different procedures um, or post-procedure, or really even sometimes when you're talking about um, urinary symptoms with patients, we do talk about um, increasing your fluid intake, but kind of watching what you drink. So, you know, caffeinated beverages, bladder irritants, alcohols, you know, every individual is very unique to what they're sensitive to. Um, I've had individuals uh, who, you know, tomato sauce and spicy food were pretty uh, um, irritant to their bladder. So just, you know, kind of making sure the patients know that um, bladder irritants should be avoided, they should be drinking enough fluids. Um, and this, you know, could go anywhere from just good old plain water to things like Gatorade and, you know, juices, etc. So sometimes um, if uh, a patient may be having severe, um, you know, urinary symptoms, their provider may prescribe something that could help with that um, as well. So um, <clears throat> some first aid measurements, and here is, say, you are mixing BCG and you were not using eye protection or whatever may happen. Um, if you get it in your eyes, you want to make sure that you are flushing it. Um, you know, most clinics have an eye flush station. You want to make sure that you remove your contacts if you do wear them. And then, you know, seek medical attention as soon as possible. Skin contact, you want to make sure that if it's in your clothes, you're removing the clothing, um, also flushing um, the area with copious amount of water. If for whatever reason you ingest it, um, you want to make sure you're seeking medical attention. And if someone ingested and they, for example, needed CPR, make sure that you're not doing, you know, a straight mouth to mouth. 
Um, and of course, please do report the incident according to your facility's um, protocol. A um, lot of information here, um, but kind of just in a synopsis, it is talking about some contraindications, warnings, and precautions, um, you know, um, when it comes to the uh, BCG administration. It is a category C medication. Um, and so, uh, you know, it is not known. So, for example, if someone's pregnant and they were to need this treatment, there's not a lot of information out there. Um, there's, you know, not a lot of studies in humans to whether um, this is safe. Um, same thing with lactating mothers. Um, they do talk about how BCG should not be administered to immunocompromised individuals. Um, it should not be administered if someone has a concurrent infection. So it's not only that urinary tract infection, but say someone has a ear infection or a skin infection. Um, we usually uh, you know, recommend to wait uh, until that's resolved before you start your treatment. Um, they do say, please don't administer BCG uh, for individuals who have active tuberculosis. Um, BCG, is, BCG is not a vaccine for cancer, um, and it does contain um, that live little mycobacteria, um, and so hence the reason of why it must be prepared and handled appropriately. Um, we do talk about monitoring patients, you know, for their symptoms. We talked about if um, their symptoms last over 48, 72 hours, if they have a really high fever, um, this could perhaps be a sign of a systemic, uh, you know, manifestation there. And so they should be calling their doctor's office seeking medical attention. Um, this can sometimes um, cause, you know, symptoms uh, that mimic things like prostatitis, workitis. Um, and if those last for, you know, more than two or three days, most certainly it could suggest an active infection. Uh, lastly, uh, for those who have handled BCG for a very long time, um, now unlike the BCG vaccine that's actually injected into your body, but it could perhaps start um, showing that tuberculin sensitivity, <clears throat> excuse me. And so um, that's something to be aware of, you know, if you handle BCG a lot. Um, and that brings the end of the presentation here. Um, I see that um, perhaps there were some questions there, Vic. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and bring those up. A great presentation. I got to really commend you that you think you covered everything. Um, a few things I think will bring some questions up. I've got a few discussion points I'd like to talk over with you. But let's bring up our first one here. Um, this is by uh, Raj. I received BCG when... His child, first job, PPD positive, and I have to, had to take three months of the medication for TB and x-ray. And we talked about that before the show started. Because, we did. So why don't you go ahead and explain what you said about that? Yeah, so um, I, I was on the same boat there, Raj. So I received the BCG vaccine as a child as well. And um, prior to starting clinicals in nursing school, had to, you know, do the whole physical and PPD test. And, um, you know, I, I could argue to whether there was an actual induration or some skin irritation, but knowingly that I had that BCG vaccine, um, they most certainly wanted me to get an x-ray. 
Um, I did have some avid discussions with the provider to whether uh, a medication regimen should be initiated or not. Um, and at the end, you know, I had a clear x-ray and a really just some mild skin irritation on site and not actual in duration. And so I, I didn't have to start a medication regimen, um, but it is something to be aware, right? If someone has had that vaccine, that that could be um, the route um, that is taken. Yeah, yeah, good, thanks. Uh, Katie says, if BCG is not available, what else can be used in the timeline? So I know we've had periodic shortages of BCG and we've all had to deal with it. Uh, we've had waiting lists, et cetera, for our office. Uh, but what anyway, what has your experience been? Yeah, uh, likewise, I, I swear it feels like this is something we've talked about since I became a nurse in neurology, the BCG shortages, right? Um, one time, funny, funny enough, I even Googled how BCG is made because at this point, I just <laughs> wanted to know why why we had such a shortage and why we couldn't do more. But what we do, so likewise, we had wait lists. Um, some patients, now of course, this is provider discretion um, and it having uh, other intravesical treatments. So whether that be mitomycin, gencitabine, Valstar, um, and um, others did you know, have wait lists. We also um, sometimes did not deliver the full vial dose. And so we split, you know, the vial into different, um, uh, different um, sessions. And so, for example, we try to bundle our BCGs, right? So we're doing a whole bunch of them on Monday. Um, it might be that, um, you know, the, the vial is not used in its entirety um, and um, had to definitely get creative there. But lots of patients that had alternative treatments um, like mitomycin and gencitabine. So. Yeah. You, you kind of do what you have to do. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of the things that um, I, I recall quite a bit was the lower dosages of BCG. We would give, you know, one third doses. Mm -hmm. and uh, Often patients um, have had some intolerance, you know, they'll, they'll develop a lot of urinary urgency, not, not the high fever type where you're worried about a, uh, a sepsis from BCG, but more the irritative symptoms that they were having complaints of. And so we tried lower doses, like a one third dose on those particular patients, and they did well. They were able to okay. complete their, their treatment options um, by just decreasing dose. Any similar type situations for you? Yes, um, we've had patients who, well, so let's say we've had to do lower doses, not only because of shortages, but you're right. Um, some patients don't quite tolerate it um, as much. And this goes for really any of the intravesical treatments. Um, but for, for BCG, it is nice that we can kind of administer, uh, you know, that lower dosage there. Um, and then they're able to tolerate. But I've also had patients who um, were not able to tolerate their intravesical treatment period um, and who had to stop completely um, and kind of reevaluate um, their course of treatment altogether. Were you ever doing the uh, combination of interferon A with BCG? We did. We did for a while there. Um, not as of recent, but yes, we, we certainly did that for a while. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it was a Dr. McDonald, if I remember right, something 
along that line that had done a lot of research and that protocol actually called for a lower dose of the BCG, like a one third mm -hmm. dose mixed with the uh, interferon A. And we were utilizing it for patients who failed BCG by adding yeah. the interferon to it. And I, I, we had some successes, like everything else, nothing's a hundred percent effective. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Fanny Persons said, what are the long-term risks for patient who is receiving the live bacteria for prolonged time? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So one of the biggest things that I'll stress here, so when we're talking about um, who should not receive that uh, treatment, um, so when we're talking about someone who maybe had traumatic, uh, traumatic catheterization or post-surgical, aka they might have a sore in their bladder, um, this is it kind of relates with this question because intravesical treatments, um, not just BCG, but say mitomycin, who's an actual chemo uh, drug, they really just stay in the bladder, right? Now they, they can cause irritative symptoms and, and whatnot, um, but the the main concerns when you're talking about a overall, um, you know, full blown body sepsis, et cetera, uh, would probably be from it crossing from the bladder into your, uh, you know, bloodstream and, and whatnot. And so um, just the intravesical treatment into the bladder to a patient who is a perfect, you know, candidate for that. So no, um, it, it should, it should not be, um, there should not be any long-term full body effects, I guess we'll put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good point. It's the absorption of, of BCG that's the concern. So that's why, yep. as you stress, make sure that they don't have gross hematuria. Mm -hmm. Now, um, some of us who do your analysis do, you know, the test strips and it comes back positive and then you look under the scope, maybe you see a few blood cells and we're comfortable. Our group is comfortable giving BCG because you are going to have, you know, some microscopic hematuria, but yep. the gross hematuria, you hold it up and it's red. Those are the ones you want to avoid because that's a patient who probably has an open area of the bladder that could absorb it. Absolutely. I think that you're always looking to decrease those side effects. Um, any great stories to tell about patient success stories? Um, well, there's lots of patient um, success stories, um, I guess. Um, let's see here on the spot, Vic. Okay. I'll, <laughs> uh, I'll, kick, I'll kick it off. I'll tell you one of mine. So we had a patient, you know, I was involved before BCG was FDA approved and I worked with a three person urology group at the time. One of the doctors was very proactive in jumping on the bandwagon for everything. So he had sure. gotten involved in BCG and uh, wasn't part of the study, but was using it off label as part of somebody else's study. And so I got involved with him doing that. Now, one of the other partners had a patient with young guy, recurrent bladder tumors. And, you know, this is really a tough thing for patients to have to come back, have their cystoscopy and they're told you got another tumor. We got to go back in there. Even though it hadn't progressed, it was still going through another surgery. And they think like, well, this cancer is never going to end again, a young guy. Uh -huh. And this had happened. And I talked to the other urologist and I said, you know, your, your buddy's using this BCG stuff and it, it's, uh, I've had some pretty impressive results. I said, would you like to try this guy on it? So we did, we, we put him on this. Well, this guy, that was his, he went through his course of BCG, never again had a recurrent tumor. And, you know, for a while he would, you know, I'd see him all the time. 
And he got to the point where he's on his once a year cystoscopy. And I think it was about his decade, a 10th year. And he comes up and he goes, you know, he says, I'm so glad you talked to that doctor into trying that medicine because he says no more tumors. So, I mean, it's, it's, you know, for not all cases are going to be like that, but when it's that, you know, dramatic, it's really a great story. Yeah, no, that, that is a great story. Um, out of curiosity then too, Vic, do you have, you know, a lot of our bladder cancer patients, unfortunately are smokers. Yeah. Right. Um, do you have, do you see, what would you say is the percentage of patients that, you know, once they have that diagnosis, they're kind of going through these treatments, which, you know, it's not easy. You do cystoscopies and, you know, you have to have surgeries every once in a while. Sometimes you need little biopsies, bladder treatments. I mean, you name it, it's a long road, right? Yeah. I have a lot of patients that don't, don't give up smoking, um, even though we talk about it. And, you know, I, I would say actually more than 50% don't stop smoking. What would you say is your experience? Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a good point. And I think that in, in my experience, the patients who continue to smoke more than likely are going to have another recurrent tumor, much better percentages if they stop smoking. And it's, it's always, uh, you know, I never smoked myself, so I can't really comment the nicotine habit, but it's definitely a tough one to quit. And I think that convincing patients. So the first time they'll probably not listen to you. Mm -hmm. Second time, third time, you know, I think some of the doctors have said, you know, this could be your bladder being removed in the future. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes, you know, you have to give them a real dose of reality. Um, But as you said, they'll still sometimes smoke. I've, I think we all have had the case of patients who had tracheostomies and they're yeah. smoking through the trach. So, you know, that's, that's the reality of it, but it does happen. Hey, I got a question for you. So yeah. you give six weekly treatments. Do you know why it's six weekly treatments? I don't. Great question. So you would think there was some fantastic study that showed six was ideal. Now I will tell you that there's have been studies that have conceded that six has been the perfect amount. Mm-hmm. The reality is it came in a six pack. The medication <laughs> was shipped in in sixes. Uh-huh. So it had nothing to do with science. It was strictly just coincidentally came Make in a sure six pack. That's how it, they decided <laughs> to give it. And it just kind of withstood the test of time. Now there's been other protocols that have looked at using lesser doses. Um, there was a study, and I can't remember who did it, but they looked at the bladder after each induction study for changes, and they said they started to notice this immune response after about the second or third dose. Mm-hmm. So we know that it probably takes at least two or three dosages. And I know with patients, normally the I always tell patients that you know you may feel perfectly fine the first two treatments, and that and you'll think we're doing nothing. I said. Then the third or fourth one comes along, and now you may get a little bit of that burning frequency, the irritative symptoms. So I warned him. I said, and that's not a bad sign. That just means it's working. Mm-hmm. Same thing with their urines. You might suddenly now start seeing more white cells showing up in the urine when you look under the scope. Um, again, that's that's just a, that immune response has to take place for it to work. Yeah, no, very true. And really, that's a great point, setting the expectations uh, with the patients, right? Because um, sometimes we may view things like urgency, frequency, kind of that low-grade fever as, oh, this is not good. It's, um, But it is 
kind of doing its purpose, right? It's the body is reacting to that medication, yep. um, which is, it's what we want. Now, you know, you don't want it to be an overreaction where you're concerned um, for your patient with a high grade fever, et cetera. Um, but setting up the expectations of, you know, what it will be like after they leave the office, it's very important. I mean, needless to say, obviously setting up the expectations of what the experience in the office is going to be is really, really important because it's, you know, it's invasive. It's a catheter. Someone's half naked. I mean, it's a very sensitive um, treatment, but setting up the expectations for after they leave you and they don't have you right there to ask questions right away. Yeah. It's so important. And I think, like you said, having uh, handouts that you can give the patient to take home. So mm -hmm. at least they have something to refer back to. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is normal. So I don't need to be calling mm -hmm. or this. I better call about because this is something I need to worry about. Yes, so. absolutely. Um, another interesting uh, point you'd mentioned somebody who uh, you leave a catheter in if they have trouble holding the urine and, and just draining it off in the office. We've done that in the past. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing I always like to make sure I know, especially my male patients, are in you know, elderly ones, are they having retention? So if a patient, yeah. for instance, is, is one of these guys who's getting by, but he's still walking around with 100, 200 cc's in his bladder, he's not the type of patient you want to send home and just tell him, go ahead and empty your bladder at home like we do with most of our patients. Mm -hmm. I'd be somebody that you'd want to catheterize or have them do intermittent cath. And we've done that before. Yeah, that's a very good point too. Like, so again, needless to say, knowing your patient, right? And, and knowing their history, as you mentioned, sometimes you might do a urinalysis, there might be a little bit of blood, you might be comfortable with it. You know, it's each, each individual patient is so unique and should be treated accordingly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. And you always got that patient out there who, if one aspirin's good, two aspirins is great, five <laughs> aspirins is fantastic. You know, so they think the same thing. Well, if I hold it for two hours, what if I yeah, went for three? True. Would it be better? And I think that, you know, you really have to kind of tell them, no, we don't want it longer than two hours. <laughs> Very true. Very true. All right. We do have a comment coming in. Jennifer Shipstad, are you doing UAs with every weekly treatment? We don't. We do one. We do one week one and only repeat if suspect infection. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, we do weekly urinalysis. Um, we, you know, with prior to every treatment. Um, now, say through the middle of the treatment, we're kind of like, oh, this patient usually doesn't show this or that in their urine. We might send it for a culture um, and kind of wait on that before we proceed mm -hmm. with even the next appointment. Um, but we do weekly um, urinalysis. But again, um, knowingly that every patient is unique, right? And so um, everybody's urinalysis is not going to look the same when the provider does choose to move forward with that treatment. Yeah. I think what Jennifer might be referring to is the confusion that you'll get because, as I said, as we're treating, white cells are going to start increasing. Yeah. So you, you'll see it. Now it, it's it's normal. We do a UA on every patient and I'm not doing it for that. I'm looking for bacteria. I don't want to mm -hmm. see, you know, uh, when we do a urinalysis, we don't just go by the dip test either. We do a microscopic with it. And I don't want to see bacteria right. in the sample because then we'll hold the treatment. Exactly. And I guess, as you stressed early on, everybody's protocols are going to be a little different. Make sure you're mm -hmm. following what your physicians and you have established as the safe protocol for your practice. Absolutely.
Heather Hansen, um, do you ever have a patient who needs a Foley catheter for the two hours and find out they leak around the catheter because they just can't control the treatment? Heather, I've been waiting for this question. I got an answer, <laughs> but I'm going to see what, what Lace says. Go ahead. Yeah. So I, if, yeah, it's yes. Um, so depending, I guess, on how severe that leak is, um, if someone really cannot tolerate, if there's so much leakage that is just not even, you know, they're just, it's super forceful and it's kind of defeats the purpose of having the catheter and, and all the things this might be when you're evaluating, you know, reevaluating, is this, is this the right thing even for this patient? Is it going to work? Is it going to be worth it? Um, kind of, again, going back to the, each individual patient, um, having a unique experience, if it's not too crazy, right. Of a, of a leak. And maybe we find that we can hold, um, the, um, I don't know, maybe the patient had a pot of coffee before they came. I don't, you know, just kind mm -hmm. of making it up here. Um, or, you know, there, there's maybe they can have some Levson, um, or something in, in those lines, if it's not that severe, but if it's really severe, it might not be the right treatment for that patient. All right. So let me see here. I'm going to kick over to the full screen. So Heather, I'm going to show you my treatment option. Um, anticholinergics, number one, get, get them on something that can hopefully relax their bladder, but that doesn't always work. Somebody with a very spastic bladder with the closed system where you've got the BCG in a bag and you've got a tube coming down to the Foley. What I do is I put that on a, uh, uh, put this into the patient and I leave this on just like that on a, uh, IV bag and leave it hanging next to the patient. So what happens when they get a bladder spasm, the fluid goes back up into the bag. As soon as the, the bladder spasm relaxes, it goes back into their bladder and fills their bladder. So I found that that's been one way to really successfully go ahead and keep somebody who otherwise would be unable to have the treatment because of the severe bladder spasms. And it's worked countless times. You have to have a closed system so that it can flow mm -hmm. back and forth. But uh, unless they really, really have bad contractions, it'll keep it in their bladder and get the treatment option, uh, treatment performed. Susie Swain, we have patients do a urinalysis the day before the treatment. Yeah, can't argue that. That was reasonable. I, again, yep. I think you just want to make sure they don't have an infection mostly. Yep. And Nancy Brownlee, we have our patients rotate their position every 15 minutes, backside, abdomen, other side. Maybe you mentioned positions. This is done for two hours in the office. We can send them home if compliant with instructions. Uh, yeah, I, that's uh, something I always tell patients to do. Don't just sit in a chair somewhere and stay, you know, like a, a statue for two hours. You yeah. want to rotate. And that that is part of the uh, the insert. When you look at the BCG insert, it does talk about, you know, uh, kind of moving around and whatnot, um, being active. You're right. Don't just go take a nap for two hours. Right. Um, um, I actually um, joked one time talking about a patient going maybe on a trampoline and just, uh, <laughs> you know, hanging out like that. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. But um, anything, yeah. anything. <laughs> just the just twist. regular, you know, moving around, making sure it's kind of doing its thing all over the bladder. Yep. Yep. And patients, I think, can be trusted with it. They're pretty good yeah. about it. If you tell them, if they kind of know what they're doing, you know, they want to try to slush it around in there. 
Have you tried the Cunningham clamp? Uh, you know that the Cunningham clamp is an idea, but if they get a forceful enough contraction, it's going to spray out even through a Cunningham clamp. Yeah. So it's, it kind of depends. Um, patients that have just like kind of, I think maybe a sphincteric issue where they leak, a Cunningham clamp would be an option. And Heather Hansen says, thank you. So I think we may be getting to the end of our questions. I know we're getting close to the end of our show. Um, any other questions, folks, go ahead and put them in now. Uh, it's really great discussion. I, I, I think we covered a lot in BCG. And I think for the folks that are getting into BCG and they, you know, they're new to urology and just starting out, the, the things that you mentioned about precautions are really important. You know, mm -hmm. this is, you know, this is a, a medication that has a risk of causing contamination to you and to the patient and to the people in their house. You know, it's a live, uh, organism. So you want to make sure that you treat it with the appropriate, uh, precautions and having the the bleach so that they can kill it off before it gets released into the the wild so to speak by treating yeah. the the toilet and you know these things are important um with bleach i always caution patients to be careful when they're using it because bleach used straight is pretty caustic and it can cause mm -hmm. burns skin burns so um, yeah. always tell patients be careful when they're pouring you know not to do a high pour, you know, get down close, close enough to the toilet that they're not getting contaminated. But I can tell you that I I've seen very few, I, I, if any patient or patient family members that have developed tuberculosis from BCG right. treatments. Right. No, likewise, it's just, I think, you know, obviously immunocompromised individuals are, are obviously at higher risk. Hey, Andrea, welcome hey. to the show. Only an hour late, but that's because we started an hour early. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Hey, I, I, I do remember that you said that now that you, dang it. You, you missed a great show. But do you have any comments before we leave on BCG? <laughs> um, I do not have any comments today. Sorry I missed it, everyone. <laughs> no, not a problem. Um, you know, it's, it's unusual that we're, we're so fixed to always being on at nine o'clock, but I've had a couple of instances where due to speakers, uh, um, schedules not being flexible enough to, to do it, that I've had to go ahead and change the time. And here comes John coming in too. Uh, you didn't catch the memo either. We started an hour early, John. We're at the end of the show. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> but, but it went really well. Lace and I handled it just fine. Um, but I did want to bring you guys in since I saw you coming on the screen. Um, oh, I, as I was saying, sometimes we start an hour early if it's there's issues going on with people. Um, I also had a, I've got a family wedding that I have to get to that's out of town for me because I live in Indiana now. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, okay, an hour early wouldn't be such a bad thing to try to get everything wrapped up. But uh, really great discussion on BCG. I think you covered, as I was saying, Lace, you covered everything that we need to um, for people that are new, especially to the to use of BCG, that's really important. Oh, I'm sorry, I missed the live. Yeah, that's okay. You and you've got to get up really early. But Susie Swain was up, uh, so I can tell you, <laughs> she made awesome. it on time. But yeah, so next week we'll be at our regular schedule again, 9 a.m. So no problem. Um, and I think I forgot to mention at the last show that we were going to be starting an hour early, but I did have it in our our. Uh, things. I, and Katie says, that's so funny, Andrea. 
<laughs> I was setting up the lamp behind me for the show. <laughs> Looks nice. Thank you. How was you? And you would, you were recently in Europe, right? I was. Yep. Yep. We went to Paris. Wow. And we also went to Iceland. Oh. It was awesome. a dream. It was exactly like I imagined it would be. It was an absolute dream. Yeah. 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 Very good. All right. Hey, well, they, did you, are you using your microphone, Andrea? I thought I was. Oh, okay. Are you able to hear me? It seems like it's pick. I pick. It's I'm echoey, hearing, yeah. Yeah. I'm hearing a lot of reverb. Okay. Hey, Andrea, can you tap, can you tap the microphone capsule? Yeah, it sounds, it sounds like it is. Okay. Can you bring it closer to your mouth and, and speak into it? Testing, testing, testing. Yeah, I think it's, I don't think it's picking up on the microphone. Yeah. Okay. That's, but we usually work that out in hair and makeup anyway. Well, I'm going to go ahead and bring into the, the close of the show and uh, you guys can hang on after the show if you want. We'll talk more. Uh, let me just bring this in here. So next week we have Kelly Casperson joining us for our show. And here's our little talk. Dr. Kelly Casperson is a urologist, wife, mom, sex educator, and top international podcaster whose mission is empowering women to live their best love lives. Dr. Kasperson's work has focused on the intricate connections between estrogen levels and various aspects of women's health. Her studies have highlighted the multifaceted influence of estrogen on women's bodies and its importance in maintaining healthy menstrual cycles, bone density, and cardiovascular function. Join us this week to learn more on the estrogen effect, transforming health and happiness. And hey, in two weeks, we're going to be live in Phoenix. So join us. Euronurse will be at the SUNA meeting and hope to meet everybody there. And with that, I'd like to say thanks for everybody showing up for the show. Had a great show, and we'll see you all next week on Euronurse.